This is CNN Breaking News. Hello, I'm Julia Chatterley and we begin with breaking news from Ukraine. Ukrainian forces are entering the key city of Kherson. This after Russian troops withdrew. A local official has confirmed the city is almost under Ukrainian control. And residents have come out into the city's central square and have raised the Ukrainian flag. I want to get straight now to Nick Robertson, who's outside her son. Nick, and you've already been speaking to people who I think are amazed, elated at what we're seeing. What more can you tell us about just how much control Ukrainian forces now have? They're getting uh, stronger and stronger control. That's what we've seen through the day. And indeed, late afternoon, we've been able to see what appear to us to be reinforcements, military reinforcements on their way south towards Kherson. We've seen tanks, we've seen armoured personnel carriers, we've talked to troops who are very confident about uh, the operation, who are very confident about the way that it's gone so far. They say that it's going according to plan. We talked to the residents uh, in a town just liberated by uh, the Ukrainian troops just yesterday. They, they were absolutely delighted with what the Ukrainian forces had done for them. Uh, they were waving at us when we were driving in. These people have been living under Russian control for about the last eight months or so, the stories that they were telling us were harrowing. Uh, an old lady, a pensioner, perhaps in her 80s, told me that the Russians have threatened to kill her, threatened to bash her brains in. A young girl, 15 years old, and her mother was there as well. She told us that she'd been taken away, kidnapped by the Russians over the last few days while they were here. She said they put a bag on her head, took her to the basement of a house, Beta, they wanted to know where Ukrainian troops were, and she thought that she was going to be raped. Um, the stories have been very difficult for people to live with here. There's a lot of emotion on the streets today. People out seeing friends, relatives, neighbours, who they really haven't been able to congregate with for, for a long time. Um, very emotional reunions. But I think there's a general sense of relief, a huge relief. Um, the city in a strange way, the town rather in a strange way, was very quiet because there's this relief, but you, people don't know what's going to happen next. They've been so traumatized by what they've been through recently. The past few weeks, they said the worst with a lot of looting, uh, the Russians stealing um, uh, a lot of cars. We saw the bank had been broken into and completely trashed in the town. So it's been a very traumatizing period and people really are only just beginning to come to terms with that sense of freedom. Very happy with a young boy who was the first one to raise the uh, the Ukrainian flag in the city as the Russians left, even he said before the Ukrainian troops arrived. And I think that's what we're getting a sense of in Kherson tonight as well. I think one of the interesting things that we've heard from the Russian troops, they said that they'd pulled all their troops out as planned and they had saved all their equipment. Well, I can tell you from what we've seen here today, the Russians absolutely have not saved all their equipment. We've seen a lot of it blown up by the side of the road, a lot of ammunition left behind and scattered. So the notion that Russia escaped without uh, losing equipment really doesn't bear up to scrutiny of the, of the facts on the ground, Julia. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in there, Nick. Uh, firstly, I just want to point out what we've been showing our viewers as you've been speaking is 
uh, images, video from, from social media. And, and one in particular that we were just showing was, I believe, Ukrainian troops, because they're carrying the Ukrainian flag, walking, I, I believe, into Kherson and being greeted by crowds of people taking videos on social media. We're showing it again now, holding balloons, just to give our viewers a sense of, of how the Ukrainian forces are being greeted as they now come into what we're calling oh, um, liberated yeah, uh, territory. Absolute euphoria, Julia. I mean, mm. it, it, I, 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 I've seen a lot of conflicts and, and I can't remember a time when we drove into town um, and, the, and everyone was waving at us. They were out standing at uh, the end of their driveways, if you will, by the side of the road, waving at us. And whenever they saw coming up and hugging the soldiers. Well, old ladies w w were coming up and hugging us as well. I mean, it's very emotional to be on the receiving end of it. So these troops who have fought hard to get there, who've been in battle for so long, the soldiers we were talking to earlier, you know, speaking about months and months on the front line and now getting this, now being able to take the territory back, now being able to liberate these people, now being able to reassure them that they're safe and to be able to be um, repaid is the wrong word, but 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 given emotion, uh, given that real overpowering sense of thank you and of gratitude and of, 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 of we appreciate what you've done. That's what we've witnessed here today. And I and I think this is what we're seeing in social media appearing now in in Kherson. People are so relieved to have some certainty back in their lives. Uh, you know, the accounts we've been having have been Russians looting. This idea that you could go out of your house and you didn't know how you were going to be treated. A lady told us about filtration camps that the Russians have been taking people away beating them to try to find information out about where Ukrainian troops were. And this was a fear, an ever-present fear. The, the lady who told me that the Russians threatened to kill her, threatened to bash bash her head in, um, this was all predicated on trying to find out where Ukrainian troops were. This is what the, 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 these people have been through over the last um, weeks and days. That huge level of uncertainty, the huge... Um, lack of knowledge about what tomorrow will bring. Will I even be able to go out to the shops to, to get the bread that I need or whatever it is? That The idea that you have no idea what can happen because the Russians have been treating people here so badly in the past few weeks. This is all coming out now and I think we're going to hear an awful lot more of it as Ukrainian troops really do secure these areas here. I mean, this is just the beginning. And, and Nick, what you said just moments ago about your experience of, of being in this situation and seeing somewhere that's been a, a conflict zone, a war zone liberated, and then the reaction from citizens there and your comparison, I think, to what you've seen in the past is, is so vital. One of the other videos that we were just showing there was a man climbing up to tear down a billboard that, that clearly had Russian posters on that and, and a small girl promoting that this is, or at least in, in Russia's eyes, Russian territory. And just to remind our viewers, this is one of four regions that, that Russia claimed to have annexed. And even now, I believe the Kremlin spokesperson still saying this region is part of Russia. It, it belongs to Russia. Nick, the importance, I think, also of, of this moment of the decision of, of Russia to pull out their troops, but are still saying, at least on the surface, look, this is this is part of Russia and and we've still annexed it. It's a huge humiliation, surely, for Russia. Mass 
massive, massive humiliation. We were just in one of the uh, the checkpoint bunkers uh, that the Russian troops had been in just two days ago. They'd left in such a hurry. They'd left their kettle. They'd left their um, their milk, their spoons. They'd, they'd left in a hurry. But they'd also left behind some of their newspapers. There's pro-Russian newspapers full of propaganda that were published here and distributed among the among the Ukrainian citizens here, telling them about how they were they were all really Russians, how they were bringing in returning Russian symbols to Ukraine. All this sort of narrative that Russia has been forcing on the people here, forcing them to, to accept that they, were, that they were part of Russia and telling them, um, these are the reasons that we believe it. Here are all the icons and, 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 and statues and the things that are important to Russia that we think are part of Ukraine as well. Um, and this has been, by and large, rejected by the population here who have not... Um, at all agreed with with what's been imposed on them, but have had no way to challenge it because those that chat stood up and challenged the Russian authorities were often taken away, beaten. Some of them never reappeared again. We know some of them have been killed. So this is Even a huge that. humiliation for Russia to lose this. It's a humiliation for President Putin. It is a political, um, you know, it is a political blow to President Putin. He's previously been seen as somebody who has a very, um, a, a, a very smart and calculating strategy to make Russia great. This is what he sells to the Russian people and what they are witnessing here, even those, uh, you know, troops who are leaving, what they've witnessed here is that's not the case, that they haven't withdrawn necessarily to save troops and save equipment. They've been driven out by the Ukrainians. That's not a narrative President Putin wants to be alive in Russia. If his troops had stayed on here longer, there was the risk that the Ukrainians would have encircled them that that message of failure here in Ukraine would have grown bigger. So the Ukrainian officials believe that Putin cut his losses and pulled his troops out to save further embarrassment. But this nevertheless is a huge embarrassment and setback. And it hasn't yet been spun satisfactorily by the Kremlin to really convince people, all people in Russia, um, that they got this right. They didn't. And, uh, and this will be damaging. And obviously, as you point out, this is all happening very quickly. It's moving very fast and just managing the message here, at least for now, unsuccessful. What we're also hearing in just the last few moments, Ukrainian intelligence officials are now saying to the remaining Russian soldiers, you need to surrender. Nick, it, it goes to your point about the, the humiliation and, and to how quickly this is moving to. Can we get a sense? And I'm hoping we can bring up a map just to point out once again to our viewers the, the strategic importance of the location of, of Kherson and also the importance not just as a port region, but the bridge, the main bridge across the, the Dnipro, um, Dnipro River that has been destroyed too. Can you just lay out for us what we're talking about in terms of the geography and perhaps where Russian troops are now? And to our conversation, Nick, that you and I were having yesterday about the concern, I think, from Ukrainian officials about moving slowly into this territory because of the danger of mines being left and about the location still of Russian troops and I guess the risk of a strike from from the river's east bank. 
We have seen anti-personnel mines on the roads here today. We've seen unexploded ordnance, very dangerous ordnance, lying around on the roads uh, in the wake of the Russian retreat. Um, it is a concern. Uh, the military here is trying to mitigate against, uh, against that. We have seen mine clearing equipment uh, in the area as well, as well as um, pontoon bridges, uh, you know, that can be used to, to bridge over water that the Russians have blown the main bridges up. Um, um, but I think, you know, where the Russians are going is to the other side of the Dnipro River. The reason that it's important uh, for the Ukrainians that they are pushed back on the other side of the river is it is such a wide river. It is a strategic line of defense for the Ukrainians to stop the Russians encroaching further because, of course, Putin had planned to sweep all the way across at least the south of Ukraine and take the important port city of Odessa, maybe cut the capital off or cut other parts of the country off from, from the sea. So um, it is a strategically important um, a defensive line, but for both sides now, for Russia on the other side, and it's not clear if Russia is going to take up positions um, from which they will shell across into the city of Kherson, which will, which will only be a matter of uh, a few kilometers away. There's a real possibility that the Russian forces, once retreated, will uh, shell Kherson. For example, they've been shelling the city of Mykolaiv. Mykolaiv gets some of the worst shelling. Um, overnight last night, um, two parents were killed. We understand leaving a 16-year-old boy without parents. And that was shelling on a city, on residential neighborhoods from roughly the same places that Russia would be able to shell Kherson if they want to. So this is something Russia can do. Ukrainians can take control of it, but it can still be under fire from Russia. And I think from a Ukrainian perspective, to have control of this is important strategically going forward to hold back the Russians and use it as a foothold to move forward. Yes. Nick, fantastic to get your insights. Nick Robertson there, thank you so much for that. I want to bring in Salma Abdelaziz now, who is in Kiev for us too. Salma, a huge moment, as Nick was describing, for the Ukrainian government and for the citizens there, I believe, to see such significant progress being made. I think, Julia, throughout this conflict, throughout this Russian invasion, what Ukraine has done time and time again is deliver surprises, right? This is a military that was supposed to be fighting the Russian superpower, this mighty force. They were absolutely supposed to be on the back foot. In the beginning of this conflict, it looked like there was no way they could gain back the ground they lost in the beginning. And a reminder, Kherson was at the very beginning, in the first week of conflict, touted as a victory. To, to see yet again, in this sort of David in style, Goliath battle, Ukraine win and move in as quickly as it has, that is going to give huge support to everyone in Ukraine, not just those on the front lines, but here in Kyiv, where people have been suffering from power outages, where people have been uh, spending hours in the dark, where they've been cut off from water, where they've had relatives and family fighting on those front lines. That's a huge morale boost. And for President Zelensky, who has promised, has vowed time and time again to win back every inch of Ukraine, he seems ever closer to that promise with this victory. And you can't back down again. As you heard our colleague Nick Robertson uh, there, his excellent reporting right by Kherson, the strategic importance of this area right there, that land bridge that connects Crimea to the rest of those Russian occupied territories, a huge victory, a huge victory, Julia. We'll continue to follow the breaking news from that region. Sam Abdelaziz in Kiev there. Thank you so much for that. Stay with CNN. We're back after this.
Okay, welcome back to First Move and Delegates at COP27 continue to talk about ways to slow climate change. The UN-backed study says more than one-third of greenhouse gas emissions caused by human activity stem from producing, processing and packaging food. It just shows how crucial it is that the food industry itself addresses sustainability and embraces green innovation. And that is the aim of AIM. AIM is the Agricultural Innovation Mission for Climate. It was launched last year at COP26 by the United States and the United Arab Emirates. And this year, AIM says it will double the value of investments to a total of $8 billion. The coalition has 275 partners worldwide, including the governments of Ukraine, Canada, Ghana, and the EU, among many others. And joining us now is the US Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack. Secretary Vilsack, fantastic to have you on the show once again. Let's start just by describing in your words what AIM is and um, what this increased investment will mean. AIM for Climate is really an effort to try to accelerate innovation into the space of sustainable agriculture and food production. Uh, We know that we have to accelerate the pace. Uh, We have to do more. We have to do it faster. And this is a way of encouraging private sector partnerships, public-private partnerships, to accelerate that innovation. And we're seeing significant response. As you mentioned, 275 partners. We now have over 30 innovation sprints. These are uh, concerted, specific uh, partnership programs designed to put particular uh, work at action in terms of climate smart practices. So it's been extraordinarily successful. We obviously have to do a lot more, and we have to do it as fast as possible. I couldn't agree more. Of the initial $4 billion promised, I mentioned you've doubled it, but let's talk about the $4 billion first. How much has been loaned out already? And is any of this grants? Because among the conversations that I have with farmers, and it's not just in the United States, it's beyond. It's, look, if we have a bad crop, that's it. We can't afford to repay loans. So the last thing they want to do is take out a further loan, for even for innovation and, and for increased crop yield, if it means that the risks that they take on are, are too great. That's right. Well, the Aim for Climate effort is a three to five year initiative. Uh, So these resources are going to be spent and invested over a three to five year period. I will tell you that in addition to Aim for Climate, individual countries have their own initiatives. We have the uh, Partnership for Climate Smart Commodities that just recently announced $2.8 billion of investments in farming activities in climate smart agriculture, doing exactly what you just said, which is providing the resources to farmers to reduce the risk of adopting climate smart practices. We believe that there's an opportunity not only to be productive, but also profitable when it comes to climate smart practices. And so we're putting resources into Aim for Climate. We're also putting resources in enhanced research, but we're also making sure that we're providing the resources to farmers. And we're going to take the uh, results from all of this and share it with the rest of the world. We just announced a a, a climate hub, which is going to be a virtual platform for the sharing of best practices and information. So whatever we learn, whatever we know works or doesn't work, we're going to be prepared to share it with the rest of the world. Yeah, but I can read between the lines here, and and you recognize, at least here in the United States, that it does have to be in certain parts, at least grant-based rather than loan-based in order for people to to be able to split the risk of of taking on the the cash required in order to invest. Just give us a sense of of what proportion of U.S. farms, farmers, ranchers are utilizing some form of uh, climate-smart agriculture or or food system innovation today. And how do you see that changing between now and, and 2025? Well, just to give you a sense, uh, we launched a cover crop initiative a couple of years ago 
now 40% of American farming uh, acreage is, is involved in some form of cover crop. Wow. So it's been expanding rapidly because farmers understand and appreciate a couple of things about Climate Smart. They know it's going to improve the soil. They know it's going to improve the water quality. They know it's going to improve their productivity. And now what we're doing is making the case that it will also improve their bottom line. It's going to qualify them for ecosystem markets, which enables them to be paid for carbon sequestration and climate uh, benefits that they'll be able to accrue. They're going to convert agricultural waste into a variety of products that creates new ingredients for which they will be paid. So there's a whole new set of revenue streams. And I think that's the important message here, which is when you have a voluntary incentive-based, grant-based program, farmers are going to respond. And when they learn about the benefits, the financial benefits of this, you're going to see wide adoption. We've got a lot to learn, we've got a lot to share, and we're anxious to get to work. But I like the idea of them being rewarded for increasing sustainable practices or using climate spot technology. If net-net it pays you and perhaps means more output, higher crop yields, and perhaps lower prices too in order to, to finance that, then it should be a net-net win if you can make it happen correctly. Oh, that's right. And, and, and the resources that we're putting to play into play in the U.S., we know we're going to be able to continue this investment because of the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, which contained an historic amount of additional revenue for conservation practices. We've identified 45 different separate climate smart practices that we're going to encourage with these resources. Nutrient management, rotational grazing, cover crops, irrigation systems that are more precise. Uh, the use of technology. Uh, there are just endless opportunities here. And I think the key here is to make sure that we focus on the opportunity side of this. Uh, we all know the challenge, uh, but now we ne need to make sure that folks understand the opportunity side. But even just understanding the challenge, I think, is an important step. You mentioned it. Um, I think it confused a lot of people simply in the name with the Inflation Reduction Act, but it was groundbreaking in terms of of, of climate investment and, and financing. Um, assuming that, that the Democrats lose control of Congress, even if it's just the House, and of course it's all unknown at this stage, is it fair to assume there'll be no further funding over the next two years? Now, here's the beauty of this. Uh, the resources that we're using, we're using them based on what farmers, ranchers and producers in the U.S. have asked us to do. Uh, this is a constituency of, of, of really both parties and they've bas basically said very clearly use the resources in conservation, use the various conservation programs, use what we call the Commodity Credit Corporation which is another program, use those resources to help us be climate smart. So this is being driven not by Democrats or Republicans, it's being driven by farmers, by ranchers, by producers and when it's driven by folks at the local level it's a lot more sustainable both from an environmental standpoint, but also a political standpoint. Yeah, it should uh, transcend the politics of, of whichever party, to your point. Um, you and I, a year ago, were having a similar conversation. We were talking about food price inflation and the impact on consumers, and we've seen that pay havoc, really, for, for many households across the country. What's your view on, on where we are today, and can you give us any sense of, of your outlook of where food price inflation is headed? Well, the good news is, at least in the U.S., uh, we're seeing uh, a slowing down of the accelerated rate of food inflation. Uh, the last couple of months, we've actually seen a rate of inflation significantly less than what we saw in the previous uh, six months. So that's a trend that we think is going to continue. Uh, we think there's going to be a normalization that's going to take place over the next couple of months. So that's the good news. But the, the, the challenging news is that world supplies continue to be a bit tight. Uh, tight for many reasons. Tight because of climate. Tight because of weather conditions, tight because of the uncertainty in Ukraine. 
all of these factors are playing into a, a tightening supply, which obviously uh, we want to be able to address. That's why more acres uh, are going into production in the U.S. Uh, that's why we're trying to figure out ways to double crop uh, on, on acreage so that we can do our part in making sure that uh, the world still continues to have an adequate supply. So fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much and um, great to chat to you about the investment and more climate tech required, I think, all over the world. Great to talk to you, sir. Thank you. The U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, right. Tom Vilsack there. Thank you. We're back after this. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome back. And let me recap our breaking news from Ukraine. We're hearing Ukrainian forces are entering the city of Kherson following the withdrawal of Russian troops. A local official says the key city is almost under Ukrainian control. Ukrainians have raised their flag in the main square, as you can see in these images. And Ukrainian intelligence officials are also urging any remaining Russian troops to surrender. Salma Abdelaziz is in Kyiv for Salma, a huge moment for Ukraine, a humiliating moment for Russia. I think this is a victory that will just mean so much to every single Ukrainian, Julia. I mean, throughout this conflict, you've heard over and over again from Ukrainians that they stand together, that there's a sense of solidarity, that they are bound together by this fight against President Putin. And you see that on the front lines, that morale boost that troops have had throughout this conflict, that they feel they are fighting for something, that they have the backing of their nation, of their people, of their neighbors, of their families and friends. Whereas you don't see that on the Russian side. Oftentimes when we're covering conflict, we talk about weapons. We talk about who has more troops and who has uh, tougher weapons. In this conflict, it has been so much about emotion, about what a country is fighting for. And that's why this is going to mean so much, Julia, because it gives that boost yet again. Especially when you think about President Zelensky's promise to his people that he's going to win back every inch of Ukraine. It brings him ever closer to that goal. And you look on the Russian side and imagine just six weeks ago, President Putin was signing a decree in this glitzy ceremony, vowing that Kherson will forever be a part of Russia. And then just again, six weeks later, having to withdraw, having to pull out, you look at the disproportionality of that and you think, gosh, how will they sustain this fight? And how much does this help boost Ukraine's fight? Julia? Yes, much more work to be done, however, for now. Sam Abdelaziz, thank you so much for that. Joining us now is CNN military analyst Cedric Layton. Cedric, great to uh, have you on the show once more. Your assessment of what we've seen over the past few hours in particular? Well, Julia, good morning. It is a really profound day for Ukraine. And uh, as Salma was just saying, uh, this is part of the momentum that uh, the Ukrainians need in order to sustain their war effort. Uh, they have promised that they would do this. Uh, President Zelensky, of course, mentioned this in his uh, in his remarks over the last few days. Uh, several other Ukrainian officials have done this. And when you look at it from a military perspective, Julia, uh, the big thing that you see here is a movement to consolidate everything on that western bank of the Dnipro River for the Ukrainians. This gives the Ukrainians a lot of leverage when it comes to any type of military movements in the future and even eventual peace talks because they will have proven that not only can they take territory, but they can hold that territory. And that's going to be a very, very big thing for them. Now, there's some dangers out there, but for the moment, uh, this is a very big thing for the Ukrainians. Mm, there's a lot in that. Um, Colonel Layden, just to explain, because I remember right at the beginning when this war started, we discussed 
the concept of invading somewhere being very different from being able to hold it over a long period of time. And I think that's what we're seeing playing out here, simply the challenges of holding foreign territory and all the issues that we discussed and challenges for the Russian troops in particular. Yes, that's exactly right, Julia. And, you know, when you look at it, uh, you know, taking territory that is not yours, even if historically, uh, you know, previous armies of the Soviet Union and of Imperial Russia had taken these territories, it is not the same thing as actually controlling your own territory. And the Ukrainians have shown that, uh, you know, in spite of all the disparities in weapon uh, weaponry between uh, both of these sides, uh, the Ukrainians are at a major disadvantage numerically compared to the Russians, both in terms of personnel and in terms of the actual weapon systems that they have. But the fact is the Ukrainians have been very innovative in their tactics and in their strategies. And that innovation with uh, this you know, Elan, in essence, that the Ukrainians have has made a really big difference in the way in which uh, they've carried out this war. Uh, when you're fighting for your own territory, uh, you're a completely different force, a force that's needed to be, that needs to be reckoned with by an invading uh, military force. And this is exactly what we're seeing here. The Russians have no reason to be there. Uh, at the at the tactical level, and uh, that is uh, something that uh, you know they failed to train, translate their strategy into meaningful tactics. They have failed to hold these territories, and it is uh, very important for the Ukrainians to uh, prosecute their gains, especially before the winter comes. Mm. Um, you pointed out the strategic importance of the the Dnipro River as well, and we know the main bridge across that river has also been destroyed. Just you mentioned earlier as well the challenges now, even for, for the Ukrainian forces as they re-enter this region. Just give us a sense of, of what your understanding is now of where Russian troops are. And we were talking with Nick about this earlier, the risk perhaps of strikes from the east of the river now. Even if they're not present, Russian troops, they can still strike using missiles. And of course, they've probably left mines, as Nick was saying earlier, behind too. So there's plenty of challenges, surely. Yes, there certainly are. And, you know, one of the things, Julia, to look at is uh, not only what they're doing in the east. So the Russians are putting up defensive positions on the eastern bank of the river. Uh, and on the map, it looks like it's the south bank, but it's uh, it's called the eastern bank of the Dnipro. And what uh, they will be doing is they will be attempting to hold that territory. And they're also trying to make it difficult for the Ukrainians to cross the river. The bridge that you mentioned, uh, that is a key uh, movement point. It's very logical for the Russians to have blown that bridge up. Uh, it protects their retreat. It allows them to consolidate their forces in the east, on the eastern bank, and that allows for them to potentially uh, either keep that territory or move forward once again into uh, that part of the Kherson region that they've just uh, abandoned. Uh, now, the other thing to think about is the Kakovka Dam, which is uh, north of uh, this area you know, on the Dnipro River. If that is blown, uh, that could present a significant challenge for the Ukrainian forces that are coming into this part of uh, the uh, Kherson region. So this is, these are some of the challenges that are out there. There's sabotage possibilities. There are also possibilities for for uh, the Ukrainians to run into not only the mines that you mentioned, but also units, straggling units of Russian forces, uh, some of which will be dressed in civilian clothes, and they may not be abandoning uh, their will to fight completely. So these are dangers out there. Um, doesn't mean that the Ukrainians can't hold the territory, but they need to be aware that these things are out there, and I'm sure they are.
And we just heard from Ukrainian intelligence officials as well saying to those remaining Russian soldiers that they should now surrender. To your point, the, the loss of the bridge, of course, means that their escape back towards the east is also blocked um, potentially too. Uh, we'll continue to watch this. I just want to get your take. We, we've just got this video from Hassan of scores of residents out in the streets and they're yelling glory to the armed forces of Ukraine. I, I don't think we can underplay the importance of morale for this moment. <laughs> Your thoughts too on this on these videos and images. Yeah, that's that's exactly right, Julia. When you see these images, uh, you know it kind of reminds me of uh, what the German civilians said uh, after World War II, when the Americans and uh, British and other Allied forces came into Germany uh, to take that country from the Nazis. Uh, this is uh, somewhat similar to that, and uh, the Ukrainians are clearly. Uh, you know, they didn't abandon hope, the ones who stayed uh, behind in Kherson under Russian occupation, and they did it uh, in a way that was really uh, helpful to the Ukrainian military, and you can tell the utter relief uh, that, uh, that they're feeling right now. Freedom is a powerful force, and uh, the lack of freedom uh, for those people who have known that freedom and have it taken away means, uh, means a lot, and it means that they uh, will fight for it in various ways. Some of them are aggressive, some of them more passive, but this is what we're seeing here. We're seeing uh, this amazing relief that these people have been able uh, to be liberated um, by the Ukrainian military, and it, uh, it really makes a big difference uh, for them, and it makes a big difference uh, for the Ukrainian nation. This is a, a big victory for Zelensky and uh, for the Ukrainian armed forces. Colonel Layton, thank you so much for your insights, as always. We're going to take a quick break here on CNN. I'm going to leave you with those images of Ukrainian forces being greeted by those residents in what could be appropriately called Freedom Square. Ten million, one hundred twenty million at 120 million. Fair warning, selling otherwise to UC's telephone, the Mont Saint-Victoire at 120 million dollars. Congratulations, UC. Wow, 120 well, million dollars plus, let's be clear, the Hammer Falls at Christie's in New York at the largest single owner sale in auction history, spanning over 500 years of art. The collection owned by the late Microsoft co-founder Paul G. Allen raised over 1.6 billion dollars. It ranged from Air George Seurat to Vincent van Gogh. The sale, which spanned two days, was live streamed to more than 2.4 million people. And that's a record, too. I have to tell you, I managed to squeeze into a very packed auction room on Wednesday night and the atmosphere was electric. And, you know, beyond the beauty of the art, which was a moment in itself, the knowledge that the proceeds will go to charity was Pretty amazing too, and I'm pleased to say Guillaume Siruti is Christie's CEO, and he joins us now. Wow, again, what an amazing night! I, I just wonder if you've stopped smiling actually over the past two days. It's yeah, a huge no. achievement. Thank you, Julia. Yeah, it was. It was, as you said, an electric night, um, a night to be remembered for a very long time. So many, uh, you know, excitement in the room, great bids from all over the world. Um, a total figure that really uh, exceed all expectations and everything going to, uh, to charity. So what a night, uh, a beautiful night for art, for philanthropy and, and for Paul Allen's legacy. 
Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, it was it was a, a legacy collection of art. When I went to see it on Tuesday, there was a queue right around the corner, far beyond Christie's itself. So it generated huge excitement. But for me, really, the, the sort of cherry on the icing of what was a monumental cake was, to your point, the fact that we knew the proceeds of this was actually going to go to some of his philanthropic causes and, and to charity ultimately. Is that why there was, on top of everything else, so much excitement and so many records broken? I think so. I think, you know, the, mm. um, it's, it's always difficult to explain the success of sale, but that's because there is something non-rational when it, it's about collecting, desire, uh, art. But I think three parameters uh, could explain the success, the tremendous success of the sale. The first one is the quality of the artworks. It was extraordinary. Five works sold for more than $100 million, uh, masterpieces by the greatest masters, uh, from old master painters to, to uh, contemporary artists, from uh, uh, Botticelli to Hockney. Uh, um, that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is, of course, the figure of Paul Allen, uh, a genius, someone very generous, a man of passion. Um, also, the you know uh, uh, an American story, someone who started from uh, from uh, you know uh, Seattle and, and established this, uh, created Microsoft uh, with Bill Gates, and 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 uh, and then uh, uh, built this collection and many other things. He, he wanted a better world, so I think the the, the figure of Paul Allen. Uh, is the other explanation for, for um, the uh, success of the sale and, and the public uh, success for this sale. You know, you mentioned the queue, uh, uh, you know, uh, going from, from Christie's Rockefeller Center to 6th Avenue. We've never seen this before. It, wa it was really moving to see so many people wanting to see the collection. And, and the, the third aspect is, is the fact that the, every, uh, you know, penny, all the proceeds were uh, dedicated and going to charities. So these three ingredients uh, um, probably explain uh, the success of the sale or, or, or part of the success of the sale. But after this, of course, uh, the magic is, is about uh, the auction and, and the fact that the demand and art lovers were, were, were so numerous in this sale. Oh, I mean, we just we are now just showing images of that little tiny mobile there of uh, Alexander Gander. Calder as well, which was just yeah. <laughs> incredible too. I mean, we could go on about the art, but there was a keyword in there that I think many of my audience will have latched onto, and that was the irrationality when we're talking about this level of money, however much and however beautiful the art. I think there will be a lot of people going, "This is just an astonishing amount of money." Um, can I ask? Firstly, how much of it was already guaranteed going into this? Because I think this gives us a sense of sort of where we are in the world when this kind of amount, this amount of money is being spent. But also, who did the buying? Where were, where was it coming from? We mentioned tens of, of different countries bidding or people from yeah. different countries. Who bought in the end? Yeah, so bidders and buyers were very well split between the three major regions. Americas, of course, for about 40%. Uh, Europe and the Middle East for 30% and, and Asia and Pacific. So it, it was a global sale with uh, participation from all over the world. Uh, and, and you're right, uh, some works were holding guarantees, meaning that even before the sale, some clients committed to uh, assure us that they will bid in the sale. So that, that's a way, you know, to, uh, to uh, uh, secure uh, um, uh, you know, some bids in advance and, and, and to, uh, to start the sale. You know, our clients, they love competition. So when they see that someone is already interested <laughs> in a work uh, because this person has given a guarantee, 
uh, or a bit before the sell, that trigger even more excitement. Uh, that's the way the market works for masterpieces. These clients uh, don't want to miss the opportunity to buy a masterpiece because they know that another opportunity is not going to, to come uh, on the market in, in, you know, so, so quickly. So that, that's the way this market works at the top end. But beside this, this collection was also very deep, 160 works in total, two days of sale. Uh, um, so there, there, there were much more than only, you know, these masterpieces. There were a diversity of artworks, uh, a collection that was extremely coherent with the eye of, of Mr. Allen, you know, with, with some themes, nature, Venice, uh, 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 were some of these uh, uh, obvious themes in the collection. And these also talk to other collectors. They love to see that behind the collection, behind the masterpiece, there was also a vision and a taste uh, from another collector. And that's what happened with this sale. You know, I think there's something else that if people were lucky enough to see this, you'd, you'd manage to blend, I think, the ethos of Microsoft and the, the focus on sort of digitization. You could digitally go and just pick on um, a picture with these big screens and do a deep dive on the artwork, which was, was fascinating. And I think you've been a, a trailblazer in many ways for some part of the future of art, the, the digital art, the NFTs. We all know that that sector of the market, particularly this week, um, with, with crypto has been pretty challenged. How do you yeah. tie the sort of digital focus now of Christie's, the online sales that you see, the metaverse, the, the future of Web3 with the, the sort of longer term vision of Christie's? Can you tie it all together for me? Of course, the, the art market has, has dramatically changed over the last years. You know, five mm. years ago or ten years ago, an auction sale was a, a, a classical theater experience. You know, people were in the room. There was an auctioneer in the restroom and everything was happening in the same room. Uh, now it's, it's completely different. Uh, uh, the digital uh, uh, the online bidding uh, is extremely important. Uh, um, the way we prepare a sale... Uh, um, globally uh, with our digital tools, uh, allowing people to see works in three dimensions or sometimes now also uh, 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 instead of, of shipping works, you know, showing holograms of works uh, has, has mm. radically changed the way the market work. Uh, so it's a revolution. Uh, today, uh, there are less people in the room, more following online. You mentioned the number of of several million of people following the auction the other night and, and, and tens of thousands of, of them uh, being active uh, uh, during the sale. So that's, that's an absolute revolution in what we do. Of course, the NFT aspect is another layer, but it adds to this uh, uh, transformation of the art market towards something more digital. Uh, the physical aspect remain. We are talking about artworks. Uh, the physical experience of the artwork is extremely important, but uh, the digital tools and innovation give another engine to this to this uh, market, and and that's why I believe uh, the market is so strong today. Yeah, I mean the holograms are amazing because wherever you are in the world, you can get a, a physical three D sense of the art that perhaps you're buying that's on the other side of the world. So um, yes, digital in many forms in this space, and it and it plays to a broader audience as well. We could have a whole conversation about that separately, and we shall because I've run out of time. Guillaume, thank you so much for joining us today, and um, congratulations and congratulations to all the charities that benefit too, and the art owners. Amazing. Thank you, Julia. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. The CEO of Christie's there.
Okay, coming up, the saga of crypto trading firm FTX and its once high-flying CEO Sam Bankman-Fried taking a dramatic turn even just in the past few moments. The very latest after this. Welcome back to First Move. US stocks extremely volatile in early trade, but the major averages still holding onto a lot of the strong gains we saw in yesterday's session after that encouraging inflation print, of course. The direction seemingly seems to have turned. Bitcoin volatile too amid word within the past few moments that leading crypto exchange FDX has now filed for bankruptcy. Sam Bankman-Fried stepping down as CEO as well. FDX needed billions to stay afloat and couldn't find a last-minute white knight, a high-profile chapter to 11 on the 11th of the 11th, of course. Paul and Monica is here. What a stunning turnaround for this company, Paul. And at the core of it, I think the use of client assets. But the idea now that there is no white knight out there and a lot of people saying he was the white knight, this company was the white knight over the past few months. What on earth happened? Yeah, this really is uh, a shocking, uh, rapid fall from grace for uh, for FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. As you point out, Julia, this is a company that was trying to prop up the broader crypto space by investing in some struggling uh, Bitcoin-related firms. And then all of a sudden, they needed help because they had a hedge fund unit that was operating at the same time as their crypto exchange, Alameda. That has been shut down. There were hopes briefly that Binance, a rival was going to bail them out, almost like J.P. Morgan buying Bear Stearns many, many years ago at the start of the great financial crisis. But then that deal fell apart. And as you said, there were no other white knights willing to step in. So now we have FTX filing for bankruptcy. Sam Bankman-Fried is leaving the company. This is going to have ripple effects, I think, on a lot of companies within the crypto universe. Coinbase stock is down today pretty sharply. Robinhood is down. And keep in mind, Julia, Sam Bankman-Fried bought a stake in Robinhood. What happens there? This is an FTX bankruptcy, not a personal bankruptcy. But, you know, you have to wonder if Sam Bankman-Fried's financial situation uh, can't be pretty promising right now either. No, I mean, he became one of the biggest um, Democratic Party donors in the midterm elections as well. So, uh, I mean, there's so many angles here that we could discuss um, minute by minute. Paul, I'm sure we're going to be talking about this next week. Thank you I for agree. now. <laughs> yeah, and beyond. Paul and Monica, thank you for that. OK, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Richard Quest is up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.